Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 20. I'm your host, Barney Smith, thestorycomic.com, and we're excited to have with us the best-selling and acclaimed Vermont author, Bernie Lambic. Bernie. Hi, Barney. How's it going? Back in November, you came out with a sequel book. To the first book he came out in twenty in twenty eighteen. The first book he came out with Uncivil Liberties. Yeah. And you just came out with a you would call it a sequel? Yeah. An intent yeah. to commit. I mean, so it's some of the same characters. It takes place a few years later in time than the events of the first book. So the main protagonist in this book is her name's Sarah Jacobson, and she's uh, the daughter of the person who might be considered the protagonist of the first book. So I want to, I want to get, I got lots of questions about setting and, and your writing style and, and how you produce, but can you kind of give people a bit of a background as well as kind of your history and how you started getting into, into writing mysteries? Originally a teacher, graduated from Dartmouth. And, yeah. 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 I graduated from Dartmouth in the seventies and I did teach elementary school for a few short years and went to law school and I did a few other things and then went to law school in 1983 to uh, no, 1985, sorry, to 1988. At that point, moved to Montpelier, um, where I've been practicing law since 1988, um, based in Montpelier. And um, so I've been doing that a long time. And it was just about 10 years ago, I decided, well, I want to try a novel. And I you know, had no idea what I was doing. And, you know, so from about 2011 to 2018, I, I kind of developed that first novel. Um, and then luckily found Rootstock Publishing, uh, who helped me get it off the ground. You, what's, what's interesting about your books is that your books seem to kind of take on a books that, that, that kind of focus on First Amendment issues. And as you said, that Uncivil Liberties, you started in 2000, uh, 2011, the the source of what the book was about kind of evolve over time since it did kind of take seven years to write? Well, I mean, sure, the book evolved. I wouldn't say the source did. I mean, it just took me a long time where there would be periods of six months or so where I just put it aside and didn't work on right. it and pick it up again. And um, you're right. There's a focus on First Amendment law and constitutional theory in both of these books. Um, on Civil Liberties has to do in part with sort of cyberbullying of a high school student by another student who has some homophobic beliefs and um, and targets a friend of his, somebody who really is a friend. But um, she, the beginning of that book sort of starts with her death. And the question is, how did she die? Why did she die? And it appeared to be connected with the cyberbullying. So there's First Amendment issues around that. Uh, throughout uncivil liberties, as well as some other issues like prayer at town meeting comes mm. into it. Um, an intent to commit the, the second book uh, has to do with racial justice organizing and questions about when does a threat um, become unprotected by the First Amendment? When is, when is language so severe as to be considered not protected by the First Amendment? So that's one, one, one of the issues. And another issue has to do with flying the Black Lives Matter flag which has uh, an issue that's come up for public schools in Vermont and um, whether that raises a first amendment issue for them if they're confronted or, or presented with uh, petitions from students of a different 
um, perspective or persuasion that want to fly their flag. And then, you know, so it's, it, that's sort of called the public forum doc, doctrine. Do you create a public forum if you fly the flag, the BLM flag on your flagpole? Right. How, how difficult or easy it is for you to transition between putting on your author hat and putting on your lawyer hat when you're trying to write this? Do you, or how does that work for you? Well, for sure, to make it a novel that people might want to read, there has to be characters <laughs> and plot and character development. And that's the part that was new for me and, and hard. You know, how to make characters come alive and breathe is really the hard thing, I think, for a novelist and I think was challenging for me. And that's what I was trying to do. Um, it's not just a legal brief, you know, so um, but it's it's mixed between the both of these are mysteries. I call them legal mysteries. And so it's mixed between the mystery plot that is, that's inhabited by these characters and then, you know, the legal issues that they confront. And I do indeed spend quite a few pages um, dealing with legal argument before courts and among lawyers and lawyers and clients trying to figure out these constitutional issues that have interested me so much in my career. So there's a you know, a real deep connection between the kind of legal work I've done over the over many years now and 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 the issues that I cover in these books. Right. Do you ever read like any like case study or deposition or something along those lines? Of like, oh, this would make a great. Oh, I got to do you do you feel yourself you have to like put up some walls or do you kind of catch yourself with a like a notepad next to you like. This is, I mean, just put this down as some sort of story seed for another book, or how does that, how does that work for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, close to that. I'm not quite a notepad <laughs> when I'm reading a deposit, but, you know, I, I do draw from my work and from cases I know about. And, and, um, you know, in fact, I mean, the first book dealt with, in part with, as I said, um, prayer at town meeting and whether public, Towns having their town meeting can constitutionally begin their town meeting with a Christian prayer. Do that, and and I had a case of that kind challenging prayer at a town meeting that I did with a couple of ACLU attorneys um, that we brought and we challenged that. So I, I I mean I changed some of the facts and you know the people involved, but I drew largely from right. the work I had done. There are some fictional characters obviously in this um but it does take place in montpelier other than the characters is it a fictionalized vermont or is it or is it real vermont yeah some fictionalized but i also base it largely on Mont in montpelier and and real places in montpelier sometimes i change the names sometimes i don't so a lot of the street names are made up but anybody that knows montpelier would kind of know where it is and i i mean i have people getting coffee at a place I call Sacred Grounds Cafe, which is very much Capital Grounds in Montpelier. And, you know, so I use real places and people will recognize that. I mean, I think that's been a fun thing for some of my readers, Montpelier readers, Central Vermont readers tell me, oh, you know, it was really enjoyable to kind of locate these places and know what you're, what you're referring to. Beta readers, proofreaders, people that come in to kind of read that are all of them from Vermont or have you been deliberate to try to find people to kind of help proofread and do some beta reading that are like outside the geographic area? With my first book, I sought out a larger group of readers, some, you know, law school friends that lived around the country and 
so forth, old friends and a few more. With the second book, I, I didn't do that. I mean, I had a few readers, um, critical readers, um, who, who gave me you know, tremendous feedback and they're recognized in the acknowledgements in both books. So that was really important. That was before it got to the stage of Rootstock um, pairing me up with a professional editor who in both cases is somebody called Ricky Gard Diamond, who's a well-known Vermont writer herself, uh, essayist and, and uh, novelist and short story writer, but she's a terrific editor. And um, so she, she gave professional editing to both of these books. Do you find it important for people to, to kind of like give you feedback who kind of understand, understand the medium that you're writing in or having somebody that doesn't understand you know, say like the, the law side of things. And then also same thing with like the geographic aspects of it, like having people read that aren't from Vermont to translate it well to some that might not be familiar with the, with the geography. Great questions that I really didn't think about ahead of, ahead of time. Now that you're asking them, um, probably should have done more of that. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the readers weren't you know, we're not lawyers and so didn't have that kind of legal expertise, but mostly more of them were uh, yeah. with the first book anyway. How timeless do you see these these stories that you're telling? Could you tell them that are, that are based off of some specific slices of Vermont politics as it happens? Do you see some of the messaging and some of the messaging, the morals and, and the journeys feel timeless to the readers? Yeah, it's that mixture of top, you know, topical things. I mean, cyberbullying in schools, for example. But you know, the the tension about what kind of speech should be protected, um, as a matter of constitutional law, but also as a matter of morality. You know, what do we tolerate? What don't we tolerate? I mean, those are timeless questions. And you know, intent to commit is also a love story. That's part of the part of the reference in the title. You know, there's timeless issues about relationships and people struggling. It's interesting. You went from from 20. It took you seven years to write your first book. But it only took you like two years to two or three years to write your second book. After you finished Uncivil Liberties, did you say was it destined for a sequel, or did or did you have a spark of inspiration afterwards and said, "I got another book coming. I got to write." It this took book. a little while to get there, so no, it wasn't destined. I didn't feel that right from the beginning, but right. I mean, I kept thinking about the characters and wanted to develop these characters further. And I had some other legal issues that um, struck me as interesting to build a mystery around. The, fo the focus of the mystery is a kidnapping in the second book. The principal character is kidnapped um, right at the beginning. And then there's backstory that fills, fills in how that arises. So no, it took me a little while, but but you're right that it didn't take me nearly as long to write the second book. And part of that's a matter of confidence developing, you know, I felt like, oh, okay, I, I can't do this, I didn't know, you know, earlier, and was quite doubtful about whether I'd ever really accomplish completing a publishable novel. But when I did, I felt like I can do it again. And, and I, I mean, I feel like the writing's better in the second book, and, and it's a better book. Are you already working on a third one? Barely. I've done some writing about, again, about the characters continuing right the development of their lives, but, um, but I don't really have a plot yet. You get two books down, your work, your, your, your work, you've set your pace. What would be some, what would be some advice that you would give to some budding authors or some people who are looking to write their own thing, but they just 
don't seem to have enough hours in the day to figure out a time to do that. Exactly. I mean, that's true for a lot of people. I, I don't have particular discipline about saying, you know, I'm going to write, get up at six in the morning and write for three hours. I, I don't do that. I kind of just have written when I wanted to. I mean, what's worked for me is my kids um, grew up and many years ago now they're, they're in their thirties and, and I've been a lawyer for a lot of years. So I've been sort of being a lawyer half more or less, you know, more like half time luck, the luxury of, my, of my own time and directing my own time. Also, as a, a as a partner in a law firm, I'm not. I don't have a boss. Of course, cases arise that um, become pressing and occupy my time. And occasionally, I've done trial work. And if you're in the midst of a trial, it's consuming. But mm. but especially in the last few years, I more or less the the master of my time and had the the ability to make time as I wanted. I mean. I, I acknowledge there's a lot of privilege and a lot of luxury in that that not everybody has. What do you find about the first? What 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 are the things that kind of strike you as an author, not necessarily as a lawyer, but as an author, that you find inspiration in writing about First Amendment issues? Well, I I just do find a lot of these uh, issues really interesting, and the debates about them really interesting. I mean, it's going on all you know, all the time with the Supreme Court cases and, you know, the development of the law in this area, the development of the law, especially around religious issues is just changing dramatically with the rightward drift of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, for me, it's fascinating. And what I wanted to do was to bring some of the this thinking and argument to a, a lay audience that might be interested in a mystery and want to read a mystery Right. Um, but also then be exposed to uh, the First Amendment issues in theory. You know, you were a teacher, too. So are you like yeah. kind of combining your first part of your career as an educator with the lawyer piece, kind of combining those with having people learn something from your books as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I tried to deal with the law and the way lawyers work in a, in a realistic way. I mean, that really is a goal. A lot of people have, you know, their exposure to law, seeing law and order on TV or something like that. So they're used to police dramas and criminal law dramas where everything's packed into 60 minute episodes and things happen very quickly. But um, and it's not always realistic, you know. Right. So I, I've tried to present these things uh, quite realistically. And so, yeah, education's a, a a big part of it. And people have told me that I people have said, you know, I, I, I mean, one question for me was, you know, would people be able to get into the legal stuff? And I've had a number of readers say what I really loved was this legal part. And I learned a lot about the law. It's really interesting. I mean, right. there's other people who probably don't share their views with me for whom that's not true. And they may really have really struggled through the legal parts, the legal arguments that are in the books. And maybe just skim those pages and move on more to the, the plot and the characters. And I remember you said in a, in a previous interview that the, the character from the first book was more kind of loosely based off of your personality, but with the second book, not so much. Right. So this, this character in the first book, a lawyer named Sam Jacobson. Yeah. I mean, very, very, very loosely. Uh, there was a little bit of autobiography in that, but 
And I say very loosely, and that's kind of the way it began when I was writing. And then, you know, as I wrote and it went through drafts and development, I mean, I, I realized, look, these characters have to separate from me and, <laughs> and, and my family and, and they have to, you know, they have to live their own lives and develop their own characters and personalities. So it moved away from that. So yeah, in the second book, that character Sam Jacobson is is a relatively minor character in it. You're, that was an explicit thing, or is that some feedback that you get from other people who say, "Hey, let's make it make it a new character in the second book"? I wanted to focus on his daughter and, and her partner, who who is a character in the first book, right. a main character of the first book, it becomes the the lover, the partner of Sarah Jacobson. And uh, the, they're the two chief characters of the second book. And I was just more interested in writing about them and having the younger characters sort of take the lead in that book. It wasn't, didn't come from other people really. That was me. No. Now, did you, so was there anything on there that you kind of had to pull out of the, your manuscript and say, well, I'm going to save it for something else. I try to find something else for it. I mean, I know this happens with writers a lot. They might write a whole 50 pages that then gets really <laughs> tossed, tossed aside um, that didn't happen. It was more, you know, when my editor, you know, might have said a certain passage, you know, she, she didn't didn't know what the rationale for including that was or something like that. And I had to rethink things. And I never I never fundamentally disagreed with any of the criticism that I got. Uh, early criticism, early critiques of the of the book um, caused me to restructure it some. So to move scenes from where you know move scenes around and have two timelines developing at once rather than do the whole thing chronologically that came from some critical reading and so were you always wanting to write a, a crime mystery or did you have did uncivil liberties always have that genre or did that yeah. evolve into it? no it 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 was a mystery from the start. I mean, okay. I was beginning to shake my head when you were asking, did I always want, and so all this stuff only happened when, you know, I'm in my, <laughs> you know, in my mid fifties when right. I started doing this. So um, it wasn't like I was doing any of this before, but the, it was a mystery from the start. And that's kind of a form. I mean, I've always loved reading mysteries. I read a lot of mysteries and um, that's kind of been a, um, a genre that uh, I'm comfortable with. Right. And I want, I mean, I just, I, I know readers like mist often like mysteries. So, you know, I wanted to write something people would be interested in. Your book starts off like, you know, your, your first book starts off with a murder. Your, first, your second book starts off with a kidnapping. Do you, as a writer know how it's going to end or do you outline everything out or are you, by the seat of your pants, you're gonna say, I, "Let's see where this goes." How do you? What's your style on that? Yeah, it's a little more of the second than the first. Really, I mean, there's okay. always some mixture, but I'm not a big outliner, so I don't have. I mean, I shouldn't say I'm not. I in my legal work, maybe I'm more of an outliner, but I don't. I didn't have a whole understanding of the plot from start to finish. Oh wow! Okay. Before writing, I mean, it was more certain themes and. And then some of it, I mean, really is this feeling of sort of watching it develop, watching the, seeing where the characters are going to go. And it, it takes on a life of its own to some extent. I mean, there's a, a fiction in saying that because it, they, of course, don't really have a life of their own, but it, feel, it can feel that way. And um, 
and I didn't know um, how things were going to end in either book until I got there. Are you one of those authors where your characters surprise you on the decisions they make, or are you in charge? Like I said, it feels like they are making decisions and leading me along a bit. So, I mean, you want your characters to be consistent in their character and and be real that way. What's one of the things that you notice? Because is, is that kind of a, a standard fare to kind of begin a mystery, like a mystery theory with like a crime, like right out the bat? Because then that is that something that you've get your your readers right involved in the story for right from page one. Yeah. I think it's a plot device to capture the reader's attention. Right. I don't know how standard it is. Maybe it's common, I suppose. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's, that must be exciting for you at writing it. Cause you basically get, you're, you're the first one witnessing the story unfold. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that I write that scene first. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Because that's some of the restructuring, the reorganize, oh, reorganizing wow. of the scenes. So, so in this, so in in intent to commit, which begins with the kidnapping, as I said, and as you know, um, I didn't write that scene first. Uh, it was an earlier reader that that made that point to me right. that you might tr think about developing two timelines in the story rather than do the whole thing chronologically okay. jump back and forth as long as you can make it clear what's going on um what's the next step after you write your draft your first draft yeah for me there's no such thing as a first draft so i'm okay. constantly rewriting as i go along as i write subsequent chapters i'm revising earlier chapters re restructuring as i said so there's no this is the first draft. It doesn't really even work that way. It's just, it's always a work in process. Okay. Really right to the very end, it's a work in process. And it may be that I share that work in process with someone at a certain moment in time. Of course I do. Right. That. And so, so that's a draft at that point, but it, it's far from a first draft because it's always been undergoing revision the whole time. <laughs> So at what point, as you you know, they say like you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Is there a point where you have to have the the discipline for your yourself to say, I got to stop? Is yeah, yeah. I mean, I came to places where points, especially I'm thinking of the first book where I didn't know what more to do, and I needed somebody to read it to get. So I mean, and then and then that's like a huge act of of maybe courage and maybe hubris to want to share it with somebody. And, and I look back and I think about some of those, you know, early drafts, early versions that I shared with people and they're, you know, really wasn't very good. And it's, so it's embarrassing in hindsight, but I needed to get feedback from, you know, some family members and some friends and then could keep, keep working on it. What do you see as kind of like the, the biggest drawback that you would presume for like people who are, have their books in perpetual draft form who just, I'm just afraid it's not good enough yet. What would be your advice for some of those writers who say how to get from that yeah. step to the next? Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, I think I mean some writers work, some people were are in writers' workshops and they work with a group of other writers, and then of course that's helpful. I never did that, but that often works for people. I mean, what I would say is, you know, try to get somebody. To, to read some of your some chapters, maybe some portion of it, even if not the whole thing, and give 
give some feedback and it it does it should probably ideally shouldn't be somebody you're really close to it shouldn't be you know your mother or your your right. kid although kids are more critical than anybody <laughs> so it should be your kid you know you want to get that honest feedback as difficult as it is to maybe face that and to take that plunge but if if you're ser serious about writing and serious about moving it towards publication, I think that's what people ought to do. Right. And at, at that, what point should they have? Um, you know, working with Rootstock, how many how many proofreads or you know having some readers look at it ahead of time before you send it off to an editor? A good question. Probably, I mean, if it's a first book, I would say <clears throat> several readers would be better before you're sending it to um, a publisher um, <clears throat> or an agent if you happen to know an agent and you're going that route because right. um, you want it in it's got to be in some decent shape before you get it to a publisher or they're not going to be interested in it right. and I, I don't mean just you know well a well-told story but also in decent shape with with grammar and sentence structure and those kind of more prosaic things right. as well. Do you see yourself giving a, providing that voice for say Vermont in this type of genre, or do you see yourself providing a voice for first amendment issues in this type of genre? Uh, probably more the second than the first, because that's mm -hmm. a more unusual. Uh, Vermont's important in these books, but I don't think it's critical you know, again, for people that know central Vermont and Montpelier, there's a lot of stuff that's familiar in it, but it's probably not essential to the books. So when you were, when you were working with Rootstock, how much did you have, um, say, for like cover design and, and all that kind of stuff? So my initiative to work to use these paintings, um, the design, they worked with a professional designer who came up with not both interior design and cover design. And I remember for um, the first book on civil liberties, they did several designs of the cover um, using that painting, but in different formats. Like you'll see the format for intent to commit is the paintings on the full page and right. on civil liberties. So there's these different ways to do those things. So they gave me a few designs of this on civil liberties cover you know, with the lettering, uncivil being white, liberties being in that color, and so And there were like, you know, maybe six designs. And I was with maybe, you know, a team of maybe three or four people from the publisher and me. And, and, and I remember saying, well, I really like this one the most, I think. Mm. And they all sort of very subtly shook their heads. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe I like this one. So, you know, I mean, they knew more than I did about what would work and what wouldn't work. And, uh, you know, their, their prevailing, their wisdom prevailed. Right. Um, but, um, but I worked with them and they were, they, you know, it, it was, you know, maybe, I don't know if it would have been my, if I'd really chosen something that they thought was the worst cover, they, they might have just really overruled me, but it never quite got to that point of conflict. Right. I mean, I should say working with Rootstock Publishing has been uh, terrific. Uh, working with the designer whose name is Donnie Hoffman. And, and so I just, I couldn't have been really happier, you know, couldn't have been happier with my editor, with the publisher. It's a great team. One of the things other than other than the, the, the courage of being able to 
writing again, what were some of the things that you implemented in your second book that you learned from your first book? I was just more confident with the writing. So, you know, there's a little less sweat about, is this good enough? Um, and I didn't feel quite so much like I needed to prove myself. I think I was trying out a lot of things in the first book, right. um, playing with language a little more rather than just writing the story, you know, kind of playing with language, using humor in a certain way. Right. Um, the second book's a little more serious, a little less. The, the book, first book is sort of a mixture of, I'd say a little more, a little more comedy in it. Okay. Um, light, some, some um, scenes that are light and have the characters being light with each other. The, the right. second book's a little heavier. Now, do you feel your, did you kind of get some inspiration when you're, when you start, when you're writing both books? Did you just kind of surround yourself with crime, mystery, thriller books, or did you kind of like do multiple genres and just kind of like pulled inspiration from where, wherever it kind of floated into? Yeah, I wasn't particularly reading mysteries at the time I was writing any more than any other books. I read a lot of different okay. books, not nonfiction and fiction. No, I wasn't. I, I do find myself influenced by the writers. So I, I told you I've written some scenes for a you know, possible third third book, and I had been reading over the summer these books by the Italian writer called Elena Ferrante, okay. called the Neapolitan Novels. It starts with a book called My Brilliant Friend, and they've become sort of an international phenomenon. Um, and the, I, I think they're terrific novels, really exceptional. And I found myself being influenced by that style of writing, which is first-person narrative and very... Um, uh, introspective kind of writing about relationships. And it just, it, it, it helped me focus that way a little bit more in, in writing these scenes right. involving, uh, again, a couple of the same characters. That's cool. Yeah. So you're, you're with these characters for the long haul then you're, they're not, they're not going yeah. anywhere. <laughs> yeah. For good or for bad. Yeah. <laughs> So if people are interested in wanting to kind of like follow you and learn more about your work, so the best place that they could probably be BernieLambeck.com, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's my website. Uh, BernieLambeck is one word.com will get you there. I have a, a Facebook page for um, for my sort of author persona as well. I'm trying to remember. I think that I think it's still called on civil liberties that Facebook page, but that's okay. probably something that should be changed because it was a Facebook page begun sort of for my first book. So, yeah, so that's a, a Facebook page, uh, my author page that uh, right. you'll see. All right, Bernie. Well, thanks a lot, and uh, and come back on when book three comes out. Thank you, Barney. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Take care. Take care.